once upon a time, or maybe twice, there was an unearthly paradise called Pepperland. Hello, I'm Edith Bowman. And I'm Robbie Collin. Now, welcome to the Yellow Sub Sandwich, a podcast celebrating the fact that the Beatles' Yellow Submarine is back on the big screen across the UK, Ireland and the US from July, marking its 50th anniversary. Now, you can find all you need to know about where you can see the movie and book tickets at yellowsubmarine.film. So, this is a podcast with a difference. It comes in two parts, a bit to listen to before you see the film and a little bit for after. Joining us here in the studio to discuss the film are one of the original animators, Malcolm Draper. Hi, Malcolm. Hi. And commissioning editor, film and music on The Times, Ed Potten. Hello. Now, we'll also hear from Peter Lord of Ardman Animation, whose direction and production credits include Chicken Run, Flushed Away, Arthur Christmas and Early Man. Award-winning animator Chris Shepard, Simpsons and Futurama writer Josh Weinstein and Sam Carter of top metal band Architects on why it is worth catching it on the big screen this summer. As Edith said, this podcast comes in two parts. If you don't mind spoilers, then by all means listen to both before you watch the film. But the ideal way is to listen to this bit, then watch the film as it was intended to be seen on the big screen, of course, from July the 8th, and then listen to part two, which contains all the stuff we couldn't talk about now. I haven't seen on the big screen yet, which I'm very much looking forward to. Now, without spoiling it for everyone, will we tell us about Yellow Submarine as if we hadn't seen it before? Okay, so let me take you back, let me whisk you back to 1967 when the Beatles were in the middle of recording Sgt Pepper. This was the decisive moment in their career, I think, when they moved away from that mop-top, cheeky-chappy image on which their their, their recording career had been launched. Um, There was still one loose end to tidy up from that era, which was um, this three-film deal that they'd struck with United Artists. But the first of those three films, A Hard Day's Night, the live-action film they'd made with Richard Lester, had actually been not only incredibly successful... Uh, but was a real critical success as well. And I think totally holds up as as this kind of new wavy sort of early masterpiece from the, from the era still today. So that had gone down very well. However, the following year, they made another film with Richard Lester called Help, uh, which was more of a sort of wacky caper. And none of them were particularly satisfied with that, I don't think. So the idea of making a third film in this deal was really not particularly appealing to any of them at that point. Now, around the same time, since 1965, this animated series had been running on American television, kind of week-in, week-out crazy adventures of the, the band. It was incredibly popular, but it wasn't particularly good. But what it did prove is that there was this international appetite for animated Beatles adventures. Now, the producer of that series, Al Brodax, basically put two and two together and realised the United Artists contract could be fulfilled if the third film was an animated one. And that could be made with basically minimal input from the band beyond these three or four extra songs they've been contracted to produce for the soundtrack. The blue are coming. Groovy. 
But when the animators went into Abbey Road to listen to Sgt Pepper, which was going to be the, the album, you know, all of these tracks they'd have at their disposal for the film, I think they realised the magnitude of what this, this album was going to do to not just the Beatles' career, but to pop music in general, and realised there was this basically once-in-a-career opportunity to do work that would live up to the music and would be as, as kind of revolutionary for animation as the music was going to be for pop music. What the animators at TV cartoons were able to do was draw in all of this kind of crazy uh, avant-garde influence from you know artists like Renny Lalou, Valerian Borovchik, Robert Breer and Stan Vanderbeek, who were producing these crazy sort of um, really out-there animations uh, in Europe and America, but which general audiences had no experience of whatsoever. And the studio basically realised that because the Beatles weren't particularly interested in how this film was going to turn out, at first anyway, and because it had to be done incredibly quickly, the premiere had already been booked in for 11 months' time, so basically wow. the, the, the deadline had to be hit, they would basically be left to do whatever they wanted to do, and that is exactly what they did. <laughs> Ed, tell us a bit about uh, kind of you know set the scene of where the Beatles were creatively at, at this time, nineteen sixty eight, and what audiences would have expected in terms of the music in the film. You know, Robbie touched on the fact that the the animators, you know, the studio had this incredible collection of songs, this album that they that they were working, which turned out to be you know a hugely important album for the band itself. It's a hugely important album, and it's almost like a bookend um, between two different eras. It shows you how quickly the Beatles were evolving at this point, because the Beatles were actually almost leaving psychedelia behind. They're about to go off and, and, and go to Rishikesh and meditate with the Maharishi and make the White Album and go off in a completely new kind of stripped-down yeah. direction. So I think um, McCartney particularly sort of wasn't unsure about this kind of psychedelic direction for the film at first because he thought that was almost sort of old hat, even though everyone else was just getting their heads around Sergeant Pepper, etc. But then once he actually saw the animation, was really kind of won over by it. So a lot of the, the songs that, that they used in the film were pre-existing things from this kind of psychedelic purple period from the Sergeant Pepper's album, even from Revolver, from Magical Mystery Tour. But the new ones they added were often kind of recorded around that same time but, uh, with, with with the exception of one, which we'll talk about later, which was very much foreshadowing the new direction they go in. It's almost like a kind of stripped down, back to basics, new sound. So it just shows you how quickly the Beatles were moving at that point. And the public still had a huge appetite for psychedelic music and psychedelic visuals, as, 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 yeah. as we've seen going together. And this is one of the first times we actually saw them both kind of in concert on a big screen together. And that idea as well, that in terms of you know the film being revolutionary in various different ways, in terms of how music's used within film, in terms of you know these songs providing a soundtrack. Prior to that, where music had sat within cinema, it was very different. Absolutely, this this is a film that's taking its lead from the songs. So you've got these songs which have already become classics, like you know when I'm 64, all you need is love, Lucy in the sky with diamonds, and the animators were taking their lead to some extent. I'm sure Malcolm can tell us more about this later on from the songs, and it was a very episodic structure, which meant that the animators could change the style according to the tone of, of each song that each scene was built around. Mm. It was kind of pigeonholed uh, as a kids' movie by some people. It was pigeonholed as an avant-garde movie by some people. I mean, you could pretty much call it an avant-garde kids movie really <laughs> um but it, it's yeah i i think I, th I think a lot of people will be surprised by how rich and how absorbing it is not just for children not just for beatles fans it's a genuine proper piece of animated work that holds up 50 years on and it's funny i laughed so much when i watched the film again you know i remember watching it years ago as a child and um but 
but how funny it is and you know that's a combination of the lyrics that are kind of intertwined in the in the dialogue and stuff as well but there's it's just a great tone it's very rhythmic kind of deadpan dialogue some of which was written by the poet roger mcguff and you can see it does have a poet sense of rhythm and and using the different voices you know you've got the dull rather kind of monotone ringo voice and the slightly higher paul voice and he was using those in concert with each other almost like musical instrument you mentioned roger mcguff there who was a, a liverpudlian poet and i think that's at the heart of the film is that that humor of that area you know it's very liverpudlian a lot of it it really is you look what i found it's the uniforms hey nice bit of gear that it's a look great on won't he won't he will won't he won't he won't he So to flesh out the context a little more, let's hear from Peter Lord of Aardman and The Simpsons' Josh Weinstein on the state of animated movies in 1968. Back in 68, pretty well the whole industry made animation the same way, and that's to say it was drawn. It was drawn in two dimensions, uh, on paper, and then it was traced from paper onto celluloid, and then the celluloid was painted and then the painted celluloids were laid on top of a background and the whole thing was filmed. So that's, I don't know, does that sound simple? It doesn't sound, it doesn't sound so simple to me anymore, but that was the way it was done. That was the only way it was done pretty well. Now, normally the effect of that would be something like, uh, in our experience, a Disney film. Yeah, before Yellow Submarine, animation was either Disney style, which was very beautiful, but incredibly bland. If it wasn't Disney, then it was very cheap animation like Hanna-Barbera. Even as a kid watching Scooby-Doo, I knew that it was not really carefully done. And also just never really funny. Like Mickey Mouse is, is one of the least funny cartoon characters ever. Now suddenly here's something which is utterly British, amazingly British. Different and daring and cool and funny and visually amazing. So it had a massive impact. This feels like a good time to bring in Malcolm. Malcolm, thank you so much for being here. You're very welcome. This is wonderful to get a, a proper insight into the whole journey for you as an animator and a team working on this film. Yeah. How did you get into animation? Oh, I, I started in 1965. Um, I've always drawn since I was a kid, you know, and I didn't go to art school or anything. I was working in a factory. <laughs> um, but I, I just sent some drawings to John Hallis of Hallis and Batcher Animation in Soho Square. And um, he sent for me, and I went to see him and had an interview. He liked the drawings, and he said, right, he said, you've got to go home, and he said, build a light box. <laughs> so I did, and he sent me a test, and I, I passed the test. And um, he said, well, we'll be in touch. And months went by, and I, I was working, by that time I was left the factory, I was working at W.H. Smith selling fountain pens or something. I cycled home, and my, brother, my mother and my brother were standing there in, in the living room, and... Uh, they were very quiet, and I thought, what's going on? And then there was a letter, and it was propped against the daddy's sauce bottle, you know, and they'd opened it. I said, you've opened my letter. And it was from John Hallis, and you've been accepted as a trainee. Wow. <laughs> this still brings me to tears. Oh, man. Life-changing. Yeah. Wow. And at this time, the animation industry in the UK, it was... It was kind of cottage-sized, right? Because I think the last feature that had been made before Yellow Submarine was Animal Farm, Animal right? Farm. And that was from 14 years ago, yeah. Yeah, by, by John Hallis, yeah. Um, brilliant film, by the way, first <laughs> first time. I'd moved under the wing of Mike Stewart, a great animator, um, and um, he was the one who got me working on the last, I think it was the last two of the Beatles series that TVC did. Yeah. 
as his assistant. I moved into TV, well, to TVC and worked with Mike on that. And then, of course, Yellow Submarine started. And uh, Mike and I started as, as Mike's assistant uh, then on the Yellow Submarine. And it wasn't until about, I suppose, six weeks into the film, maybe two months, uh, Jack Stokes, our English director, there was an American director as well of the animation, uh, came into my, our room and said, Malky said, um, we're behind schedule, you know, can you help us out? And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, do some animation. I said, yeah, fine. And I always remember Mike's face dropped, you know, because he was about to lose his best assistant. <laughs> <laughs> and um, my, way, my wage went from 18 pounds, 10 shillings a week to 50 quid a week, which in 68 was pretty good money. Wow, congratulations. Lots of fun ways to spend it as well. Yeah, a pint of beer costs one and six. Anyway, uh, you could buy a shirt for, for a fiver. Um, yeah, it was, and uh, I was single. I was 24. And there were 110 Trace and Paint girls downstairs. It was a wonderful time. <laughs> right then, let's get this missile ship shape. I kind of like the way it is. Submarine shape. When you got brought into the, the Yellow Submarine team, mm. what were the different roles? Can you explain to the audience, you know, who did what on the film? Because you look at that kind of list of people and you're, you know, as, as people who are not in that well, world, you're not quite sure what everyone's kind of roles are. Um, you mentioned George Dunning. He was the overall uh, head of the studio with John Coates. Um, but he, it, it, George never got involved with the animation side of it. He was just the artistic head, you know, of, of the whole thing. Another genius, by the way. <laughs> and um, under him was uh, Jack Stokes, uh, the English director, and Bob Bolser from, from America. And um, they, they were directors of the, of the animation. Under them were the key animators, like, like Mike Stewart and Jolliffe, who was there, and other people, Dave Livesey, you mentioned, and eventually me. <laughs> and then under us were assistants, you know, in-betweeners, whatever they were called, because they did the in-between drawings between what's called the key drawings of any movement. You know? Yeah. So, and then, of course, it goes down the, the line to uh, tracing. They, they trace our drawings off on celluloid, on cell. And then it goes down to the paint department, and the tracings are then turned over and painted on the, on the, on the, on the back side of it Yeah. Um, with opaque paints. And then those go to the camera department, and somebody else, some other department has been doing backgrounds. Most of those are very good painters in their own right, good artists. Then the coloured cells are then placed over the, the, the backgrounds and shot under the rostrum camera, and that's the way we did it. Where into this structure did Heinz Edelman fit? Because he was, oh, yeah. he was the guy, I think when, when it was decided that the, the film was not going to be in the style of the Beatles animated series... Yeah. He kind of designed the character look, and he, he was this graphic designer from, from where well, he was Czech, Czech-born German, wasn't he? He was, and he, uh, he worked in Dusseldorf, I believe, uh, on Twin magazine, which was then a very pop art kind of... Uh, was, was it pop art? Or I don't know what you call it. Yeah. Pop art time. And uh, Charlie Jenkins, uh, one of our um, animation directors, was married to a German. So and I think somehow he got to know Heinz, and he liked his stuff that he was doing for Twin magazine and brought him in introduced him to George and to John and said, look at this guy's work. And um, they loved it right away. John Coe said, that, that's it. He's, he's got it right away, you know. Because he was brought in, but then there was it took a while for the production to actually start, I think, didn't? And, yeah. and he had to kind of head off. But but he was very much throughout the whole production then, his his imagery and his kind of... Yeah, he, Heinz loved the idea of the film, Yeah, you know, um, and got into it then more. And then... Uh, as I say, the guy was a pure genius. He just it just rolled off his pencil or brush, 
It was brilliant the way you designed those characters. And no one's had, had, had ever done anything quite like that before. Were you there um, around him whilst he was, you know... He I'd, was... I'd go in his room and watch him draw and paint, yeah. And he was a lo lovely man. Yes, they do look very nice, don't they? Yes, they do. They do, though, don't they? Yes, they do. Don't they, though? Was there a script? Because what was what was your brief, you know, in terms of... <laughs> uh, were the songs the brief? I mean, what I was... I worked the... in many studios in my in my career over the years, and animators are never brought in at the beginning, or and we, we're never given scripts to look at. <laughs> so you'd just be assigned a song, as an animator would be yeah, assigned a song to do a sequence yeah, too. Yeah, or a sequence, yeah, or a scene, you know. And then we were given a, a soundtrack of the voices if the character was speaking, and they broken down phonetically, so you knew how to make the character. I worked uh, with Mike on when We Need His Love, first thing, and I carried on with that when I was animating as well. I carried on doing some animation on that uh, with Jack Stokes, the director. That would have been one of the most sought-after ones, you would have thought, maybe. Yeah, it was. Well, we enjoyed doing it, Mike and I, yeah. And we all got on well, you know. It was great. Played gags on each other every day, you know, with jokes. Tight deadline as well. I'm surprised you had time to to, uh, to play gags on each other because well, we do, we, well, you know, it's incredible when you think about it in the time that a normal, <laughs> you know, uh, how long a production. We weren't told this. We, we, we didn't. We, did, we didn't know the deadline. Wow. No one told me. <laughs> they said well, it was about a year, you know, roughly. So we knew roughly what it was, but no one was desperate. We weren't working like we must do this quick, you know. Although we, you know, John Coates, our producer, was cracking a whip a bit, you know? <laughs> especially when we got back late from the pub. Uh, the Dog and Duck pub, you know. I believe this but was the animator's pub. Is the animator's right? pub used to be, yeah. <laughs> now it's all men in grey business suits, you know. Yeah. Did you ever see any of the Beatles? Did they ever come in? Paul McCartney came in. Uh, we knew he was coming in. Somebody uh, uh, leaked the information <laughs> that Paul was coming in, so we were a bit nervous. And I was, I'd gone to the loo or something. <laughs> I was walking down the hall and I saw John Coates walking towards me with Paul McCartney. And I, I walked in our room and said, he's coming. Paul McCartney's coming with John and they walked in and introduced us to him and all shook his hand and said hello um, lovely, lovely chap and he, oh, he wore this um, uh, lovely ferrile pullover multicolour I've always envied him that pullover psychedelic yeah psych very psychedelic yeah. it's not the one he was wearing in Magical Mystery Tour it may it? have been <laughs> maybe the same one yeah uh, and I said uh, Paul was very nice and then um, later John Lennon came in Wow. Uh, a month or so later. And uh, we went round to a little, uh, on Wardour Street, which is like the film street of London, uh, to a little theatre to, to see the rushes, or the film as it had been made up at that point. Maybe a third of the film had been produced. And John Coates sat with John Lennon in the front row, and I was about three rows back with Mike Stewart and a few others. And um, the film started, and it was that wonderful Eleanor Rigby sequence, the opening of the film. Beautiful. Um, which John liked, you know, it was all in colour, blah, blah, blah. And then as the film progressed, about 20 minutes into it, it goes to black and white, because it was our line tests, what we call line tests. In America, they're called pencil tests, anyway. <laughs> um, and it's just our drawings before they're, they're coloured, the animator's drawings. Yeah. And after a, a few minutes, Lennon turned to John Coates, and here I've got to use a certain word, if I may. Go for it. Uh, John Coates was an ex-army officer, had a certain way of talking, you know, awfully posh. Anyway, and he said, yes, John. Where's the fucking colour? <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to do a little scarce accent here, but what do you mean, John? There's no fucking, it's all fucking black and white. Well, I, I didn't come out of this bloody way to see, you know, and he went on and on, and finally he walked out. But <laughs> we were all sniggering at the back, laughing. <laughs> and John said, Oh, John, don't go. And he said, anyway, and he was, he, John tried to explain it was our line test, it would be, you know, 
He came back. He saw the rest of the stuff. He did actually come back in after a few minutes. And then we met him afterwards at the cocktail party afterwards. It was very nice. And what did he think of, you know... He liked it. So he liked it, except for the quiggly. He called them squiggly bits. <laughs> yeah. What do you think it is? Nothing. Yeah, it looks like nothing. Well, at least that's something. There was one sequence that, without exception, the contributors mentioned as being their favourite, which was the Eleanor Rigby sequence, um, which I think we can talk about in this part of the podcast because it comes very, very close to the start of the film. So let's hear from Chris Shepard, Josh Weinstein and Peter Lord of Ardman Animation. My favourite sequence of all time that just lives with me all the time is the Eleanor Rigby sequence. I can never see that enough, and it's so beautiful and mind-blowing and moving, and that just totally was ingrained in my brains. People have been using photographs in experimental animation for a long time, and we, as teenagers, had seen it done, but never done with such amazing flair, the way the photographs were kind of bleached out into strong black and white. I remember so well, so well, the crane down over the rooftops of Liverpool, you know, it's just amazing to see that on the screen. And then there were things like the use of sort of Victorian images treated in various ways, I guess traced and enhanced, a thing that Terry Gilliam picked up a lot on later. That was a very striking thing. I was quite good at art, I was quite good at cartoons, but still I looked at these images and I couldn't guess then how they were put on screen. I couldn't imagine that to me like brings together all my universe of being in Liverpool and I find it quite moving. I mean, the opening shot of that sequence, I almost cry when I watch it. It gives me a tingle down my spine when you have the lava birds, the lava buildings and the sun rising behind it and that big ascending, I'm going to shiver now thinking about it, the ascending orchestra coming up and the big sun and you think, wow, I think that's where I come from. That's me, but it's beautiful. Because in the 80s, 70s and 80s, it was become like everything was boarded up. But you saw that and you, it made me realise that where I come from, maybe like quite a working class background, could be beautiful with the Eleanor Rigby sequence. And you see the sunrise and then it changes colour, it goes with purple, goes orange, and then it sort of goes almost like the day has started and it goes like sort of black and white. And then you think it couldn't get any better and you get that fantastic multi-plane shot where all the chimneys come down and then you think, oh, was that it? But then the punchline, it has like the... All the ship's fog horns and all the smoke. Look at all the lovely people. And then Eleanor Rigby kicks in. I mean, that gives me a shiver just thinking about that. I think one of the things I really love about that sequence is the way that it seems to reference this. There's an almost an L.S. Lowry kind of feel to seeing these, you know, matchstick men walking to work through through that oh, yeah, shot. Yeah, yeah. You know, it kind of taps into art, you know, out with animation. There's a sense, and, and the multiplane shot that everyone talks about, this kind of pan down from the sunrise to the chimneys. I gather Charlie Jenkins, he assembled that from, I think there was, the, the sunrise itself was live action footage. It was a total composite was, shot. There was live action yeah, sun. Yeah. Uh, there was a photograph of the clock tower that had been treated. The clock itself was a separate mm. image. And then, of course, you had the cutouts of the chimneys rising up to meet that as the camera sort of artificially... Yeah. Uh, we're, we're given to understand the camera's panning down to street level. Mm -hmm. And these are techniques, you know, when you watch that, 
I had actually come to the Yellow Submarine after having seen Gilliam's Monty Python animation. And you, you don't realise that this was the focal point for these ideas, you know, these techniques that had previously been quite avant-garde, quite out there. People hadn't seen them before. And suddenly they're appearing in this, you know, to all intents and purposes, uh, a mainstream animated feature release. Mm. Um, and then people, artists like Terry Gilliam, can see them in practice and then pick up on those. Yeah, um, they did, yeah. And the link being George Harrison, obviously, as well. Right, of course, yeah. Who funded a lot of the, yeah, the, the Monty Python films. That's right, there's a connection. Yeah. Before we talk about the specific songs that were written for the film, not everyone will know that the characters, the Beatles in the film, yeah. aren't played by the Beatles. Uh, in fact, United Artists didn't want it revealed that it wasn't the Beatles in the film and threatened to withdraw all advertising mm. from certain newspapers in perpetuity if they revealed it wasn't the Beatles. So here's Paul Angelis, the voice of Ringo and the Chief Blue Meanie. If you hear all four Beatles speak at the same time, they sound, oddly enough, so similar. You, you, if, you had a, if you had listened to the conversation that we did, you can't separate them. So we then set about separating them. So Ringo was the bass. He was down here the whole time, <laughs> and that was him. And then Paul was up there, and George was somewhere else. And... John was down here, sarcastic, at the back. <laughs> but we put them on separate voice levels. And, in fact, we didn't imitate the voices. We tried to recreate what we thought were their voices because Jeff Hughes, who did Paul, that voice is nowhere like Paul's, and yet it becomes recognisable as Paul's voice because he captures something about him, it, kind of like an innocence and a, a simplicity and, at the same time, a weariness that, that is not as sarcastic as John Clive's version of John, because that was always very sarcastic. And then we had the innocence of Peter Batten, who turned out to be an escaped... Well, not an escaped... A, a deserter from the British Army of the Rhine, who was recaptured in the middle of the filming and the voiceovers. So uh, I had to sort of take over and finish his voice off. It was quite fun, you know. It's great hearing him dissect those voices. You can instantly hear those characters, can't you? Malcolm, can I ask you about... the? one member of the, the voice talent being recaptured, because this is not something that I imagine happens on many animated films, the idea that... Well, Peter Batten. Yeah, an army deserter would be would be kind of yeah, whisked out um, of the studio. I was there that day. Um, I went out to the um, foyer, and there was a, a two MP standing there, and they'd come up... As a military policemen military rather policemen, than members sorry. of parliament. Yes, yeah. that's true. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. And they were asking about Peter Batten, and uh, he was there, he, obviously, he'd been... Yeah visiting John Cote, I believe, and uh, they arrested him. And uh, I saw him being marched out, and, and John Cote was pleading with them to... He's got one more recording to do. You know, let him do one more recording. And I believe they marched around to this uh, recording studio in on Water Street and did the, re the re recording, and then marched them off to the... It's not going to be a very clink. relaxed take, is it? No, no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He was a lovely bloke. I met him a couple of times, Peter Batten. He was a lovely man. Uh, well, listen, amidst all this talk about the film itself, we shouldn't ignore the, the four new songs written for the film. Ed, will you tell us about the songs? One of the things that's always talked about, you know, Submarine, is it was quite an easy gig for the Beatles because they didn't actually have to do that much work. Um, they came up with four unreleased songs, all of which they'd actually recorded previously. Uh, I remember it being at, at, at the studio one evening and I'd working late because I was behind schedule on this scene and they wanted to shoot it the next day, so I had to stay late, about 10 o'clock in the evening. And uh, Heinz Hadelman came down to my room. It was just he and I in the whole studio. No one else was there. And he said, uh, Malcolm, he said, um, 
uh, do you want to hear something special? I said, yeah, what's well, so he said, come with me. And he said, uh, this has just been delivered by taxi. And it was a tape from John Lennon, addressed to Heinz, saying, can you use this music? And it was, I think, a couple of those songs. Uh, was it Hey Bulldog? Yeah. yeah. Um, and we were the first one to listen to it. It was just straight, wow. from, straight from Abbey Road. You know, and he did, played you feel, his, did you feel privileged? Did yeah, you feel I did. Like, yeah. I mean, he played one of his little tape recorder, and wow, this brilliant stuff, you know. And uh, I think, I mean, it's a note from John Lennon saying, can you use this stuff, kind of thing. Well, I mean, that's the no, thing. you're all right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, fine. You know, fine. I mean, yeah. I thought it was brilliant. Thanks, um, no thanks. <laughs> yeah. I, I'd argue that, um, I mean, you, you, could, you could maybe expect that because these they, there was a slightly sort of begrudging air to the Beatles' kind of involvement in this project at first, <laughs> that, that maybe these songs wouldn't be kind of up to par, but I'd, I'd argue that at least a couple of them are properly yeah. worthy of kind of joining the canon. I think so, I think so. Yeah. Three of the four oh, were yeah. certainly recorded in the kind of psychedelic sort of purple patch sort of yeah. around the kind of Sergeant Peppers and Magical Mystery Tour sessions yeah. It's All Too Much is this kind of now seen as a kind of a minor classic of kind of psychedelic rock mm. you know it's sort of George Harrison very much inspired by, by LSD I think it's fair to say That was the one we used for the boxing which I animated yes Yes the box, the Sea of Science Yeah I mean and they pre- the Beatles much, had previously said yeah. things like you know yeah. Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds was nothing mm. to do with drugs I think it would be quite hard to sort of dispute <laughs> that this one was, was certainly influenced by drugs but also transcendental meditation so they were obviously <laughs> you know, after this film well, just after they recorded the, yeah. the kind of live action sequence at the end of this film the Beatles all went off to India so this is very much sort of yeah. the forefront of their mind one two three four can I have a little more five six seven eight nine ten I love you eight, then you've got things like all together now which is very much kind of intended to be a kind of a children's style song with kind of counting the end of the film I think absolutely yeah. it's, it's, yeah. there's a reprise at the yeah. end of the film you've got kind of counting you've got alphabets and you've yeah. got references to children's games that's right. very much the Beatles kind of getting on board with 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 this being ostensibly in some ways a, a children's film yeah. um, and then Hey Bulldog which is the real kind of bona fide classic it was made right after um, um, Lady Madonna and it's got a similar kind of piano led yeah. almost sort of pub rock kind of feel to it very sort of jaunty but very much kind of stripped down compared to the kind of psychedelic odysseys yeah. that they've been making previously and I think after an early test screening of the film Al Brodax decided that this finale yeah. in Pepperland was too long yeah. and he clipped out there for me the best song of the four Hey Bulldog Absolutely. he decided that was the sequence that had to go in order to kind of push through and I think so, for the US theatrical release it was never restored and it was only with the recent restoration that that was planted back into the film I think when you watch that final sequence it does feel like oh okay so we're getting another song here another song standing in the rain doing it again Uh, well, listen, we talked to Sam Carter of metalcore band Architects about his love for that particular song. Hey Bulldog is one of my favourite Beatles songs. And also, just because of how cool the actual video is as well, to actually see them be in the studio together and see them having fun, I think, before things started getting a bit more serious. Uh, especially watching John and Paul do the last little take on the song. It's so cool to actually to have that documented. I mean, Hey Bulldog starts with a sort of classic rock and roll riff, and the fact that it starts on the piano, and then slowly you hear the song build, and then Ringo comes in with that really solid backbeat. And also the fact that 
the difference in the actual parts of the song. Originally, I think Lennon had the demo of the chorus, which was just a double-track chorus of the You Can Talk To Me, You Can Talk To Me, which was amazing. But then actually hearing how they actually just managed to make that into a song with that amazing riff at the start, played on piano and guitar. But just from the songwriter point of view, it's just like a great rock and roll song. Really catchy, really simple, and it just does everything that you sort of want a rock and roll song to do. And also the production on it is fantastic as well. I think it was recorded when they were supposed to be doing a video for uh, Lady Madonna. So I think that you can hear like the similarities in the sound. I think Lady Madonna was more McCartney and Hey Builder was more Lennon which was Lennon's reply to Lady Madonna as well, which is also interesting. Here's animator David Livesey talking about the difficulties of animating a bulldog. Heinz Eidelman did the design of the characters and this really echoed through the whole film. How do you interpret this? I mean, Heinz did kind of almost cut-out characters. You know, the drawings were almost like cut-outs and much of the film, if you look at it, are in a kind of cut-out style. We then, as animators, had to interpret how that would be, be done, you know, how do you make a cutout look three-dimensional without it being foreign to the rest of the film? So that was one of the major problems. And, of course, the bulldog was really one of those characters which looked great as a single drawing, but when you come to physically move it, which leg moves first? How does it actually physically move? Like a crab, you know, this sort of thing. So it, it had many kind of complexities from an animation point of view. But I suppose, in retrospect, it looks reasonable enough, you know, I mean, it does the job and it seems to have a character as well as you can expect, you know, with a thing like that. But it was a great character to work with, you know, and that was, that was how we found it. It was good. was surrounded by Stogdo. I didn't know Dave did that animation. It was brilliant, because uh, there were four boar dogs. Um, and so it's hard to animate, even with one. <laughs> so he did a darn good job on that. How do you feel knowing that uh, 50 years on, Malcolm, that the, the film is getting a, a cinematic release to celebrate oh, I'm that? Very, I'm very pleased. I was very worried at the beginning of the year. I thought nothing was going to happen, you know, and everyone's just going to forget it, like it was, oh, a film made 50 years ago, who cares? But um, the Beatles are still still popular. I could have sworn it was a yellow submarine. But well, that is a logical now, is it? It must have been one of them unidentified flying cupcakes. One of the figments of my imagination. If someone asks you... Someone says, what's it about? <laughs> What'd you say? Love. Brilliant answer. It's a brilliant answer. Uh, we'll listen to conclude. Uh, here's Josh Weinstein, Chris Shepard and Edgar Wright. I think in a way it's a bit like dropping a pebble and the ripples are still going now, going outwards, 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 bigger and bigger. And I think Yellow Submarine's one of those things. And so Yellow Submarine is a film, is out of time. I know it's a very 60s, but at the same time, it feels quite modern as well. I don't know, it's sort of just in its own universe. And animation's really great at that, and that's why, no doubt, in another 50 years, people will still be talking about Yellow Submarine. I think without Yellow Submarine, you wouldn't have modern animation. You, you wouldn't have The Simpsons. You wouldn't have Rick and Morty. You wouldn't have these also these really funny animated movies like Toy Story, because I think... Yellow Submarine opened a door for that. And it opened a door for adult animation and adult humor in cartoons. Before Yellow Submarine, people really thought, oh, it's just kids' stuff. The restored version I just saw at the Pitch House Central, they had like advanced screening, and uh, I went with my, my brother, who um, you know I think I probably watched on TV with as a kid. 
and we both thought it was extraordinary. It just like really held up. The sound was fantastic. Really worth seeing on a big screen. You know, little TV doesn't really do it justice. So I highly recommend seeing it for the first time. Or if you've never seen it on the big screen, I haven't seen it for a few years. It's definitely worth uh, watching again. It's great. Two things from those comments that it's still funny and it's, you can see in front of you the birth of modern animation. I think that's a really important point to make. Um, right then, um, Robbie, Ed, Malcolm, any last words on why people should go and see the film, what things they should particularly look out for? Ed? Well, yeah, for me, it's one of the high points of psychedelia. It's one of the few occasions where the music matches up to the visuals. And it's, it's got everything in there that you love about the Beatles. It's got the humour, it's got the experimentalism, it's got those kind of messages of hope and love all in one handy bottle. It's fabulous. Robbie? Yeah, for me, it's, it's along similar lines. It's about seeing all of these avant-garde influences suddenly lurch into the mainstream. You know, if you're looking out for it, you can see this Hieronymus Bosch in there. There's Bridget Riley-style op art when they get to the Sea of Holes. There's, you know, Aubrey Beardsley-style grotesquerie. And the idea that all of this could somehow end up in a children's film and feel like it should be there, to me, is amazing. Um, and also elements of Goon Show-style humour as well. You know, that was a, a comedy series on BBC Radio that was enormously influential to the Beatles and to John Lennon in particular. The idea that I think Roger McGough's script rewrites has captured some of that humour and put it in there, it feels incredibly like it should be there. But yet again, you know, this is strange, deranged stuff that is suddenly being served up as family entertainment. Malcolm, for you as someone who is part of the team that made this film, why should people go and see <laughs> Yellow Submarine at the cinema? Because nothing's been done better after, I mean, in 50 years, that, that, that I've seen anyway. A marriage between music and visuals, it, it just works still. Go see it. <laughs> <laughs> um, the Beatles' Yellow Submarine is back on the big screen in cinemas across the UK and Ireland from Sunday the 8th of July uh, and also across the US from the 8th of July through to August the 31st. And you can get tickets right now from heading to yellowsubmarine.film. So go do that, watch the film, then queue up part two of the Yellow Sub Sandwich. It'll blow your mind. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. 